So this morning, uh, as we spend our time in the Word, we're going to be talking about trust. It's an important theme. Isn't trust an interesting commodity? Once lost, it is very difficult to recover. Uh, For example, I remember in the not-too-distant past that a couple of members of our church, um, who shall not be named, Ben and Laura, um, (laughs) brought to one of our Sunday services a plate of what is called Mandarin Limes. If you don't know what a Mandarin Lime is, I certainly did not. It's a thing which looks like a Mandarin, but tastes like a lime, which I discovered upon biting into one mid-prayer meeting. And trust was lost. <laughs> Not only do I no longer trust mandarins, I no longer trust Ben and Laura. Uh, look, in the, in the last several years of our church, when it comes to the month of January, what we have done is got a bunch of guest preachers through. Uh, and as a result, each sort of individual sermon has been a standalone thought. But this year, we are not going to be doing that. Rather, we're going to be taking this as an opportunity to circle back around to a couple of very important truths which were raised during our time in the book of Proverbs. Um, For the month of January, there are two verses from Proverbs which are going to be hanging over us as a banner. And then in February, we'll start on the next theme also found in the book of Proverbs. Um, But for January, our attention will be given at depth to one of those passages which, if you have not done it already, it is worth committing to memory so that you can recall it at any time. And that is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. If I quote that from memory today, I will probably misquote it because I have remembered it from another version of the Bible, and it's in there forever. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What a call. It's a timely word for this time of year as we prepare for the year ahead. Brothers and sisters, our God calls us to trust in Him. You are called to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. So let's start from the top. What do we mean by this trusting in the Lord? There's a few layers of meaning there, which is important for us to understand. Firstly, there's a big category that we are meant to understand. To trust in the Lord means to entrust yourself to God as your Savior. The call to entrust yourself into the Lord. We do this when we become Christians. Do you think of that as a trust? Because it is. When you come to Christ as Savior, what you are doing is staking your eternity on His being able to deliver on His promises. You come to Him and you confess, I am a sinner, I fall short of God's holy standard. I am unable from within myself to correct this problem. I stand condemned before God's law. And so, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior and Lord. There is no other. I have no plan B. I have nowhere else to turn. 
That's a trust. If Jesus is a liar, we are hosed for eternity. We entrust ourselves to God as Savior. But then secondly, also very importantly, there is here a call to trust our God in the smaller and yet very important details of your life. This is where we are called to trust that God's word is true and so our planning and our doing should be in accordance with what it says. This is trusting God with specific difficult or painful situations in your life. This is trusting him for his provision for you and for your family. This is trusting him with his will for your life. And that's a trust as well. When I choose to go without some kind of pleasure that God calls sinful in order to obey him, I am, in a sense, missing out on something, am I not? Something that perhaps my my friends and neighbors relish. And I'm doing so on the basis that I trust that God knows what he is talking about and that this thing is bad for me. When I forego certain opportunities or resources, when, when I give my tithes and my offerings at church, when I use my Friday nights to disciple other people's children, when I commit to using my time on the weekend to gather with other, Christian, other Christians each week in worship, I can't then use those resources or opportunities elsewhere. They're gone. The time is gone. The money is gone. In doing so, I am trusting that the outcome of these losses is worthwhile. Trust in the Lord. Whenever I read a passage like that, one of the questions I find myself asking routinely is, so what's the problem? Why is this verse a verse? Why is it that we need to be told to trust in the Lord with all our heart? Simply put, it's because the call to trust in the Lord is a difficult one. There is a wrestle here. And it's, it's worth our time this morning to, to bring to the surface and to unveil, to make explicit this thing which we all experience. You're not alone. It's this. Every time we are called to trust in the Lord, in every detail of life where that call applies, whenever we are finding it difficult to do so, there is a conflict happening within your heart. There is something within your nature which is asking a question. And the outcome of that wrestle, the outcome of what you decide to do, will be decided by your answer to that question. You might not know the question by these words, but I believe that this is what is happening in our hearts each and every single time. You are asking the question, is God good? Is God good every time if I believe that God is good and that his will for me is good I trust him 
If I doubt that God is good and that his will for me is good, I do not trust. Let's be clear here. It needs saying that God is good and is worthy of your trust. Do you believe that this morning? Think of how the psalmists speak of him. Psalm 84, verse 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Think, think with me on that last one in particular. We've got it up there on the screen for you. The psalmist, whoever it is that's writing here at Psalm 119, sees God's goodness even in his affliction, is what he is saying. Some difficulty in his life, some painful experience, a thing which he calls an affliction, he can see that this painful thing has prevented him from going astray. And so he concludes, my affliction was a kindness from God. You are good. And you do good. God was good to afflict me. Isn't that profound? Against this view of God is the great lie. A lie which comes from within our own fallen nature. Yes, that's true. But it is the lie which Satan has been telling people about God since the very beginning. We read of it in Genesis 3, when the devil was tempting Eve. This is how the argument went, going from the beginning of Genesis 3. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any fruit, of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, besides the fact here that Eve is slightly misquoting God, thus far, the temptation has been merely to sow doubt about what God said. The first lie is a question. Did God really say? He's attempting to undermine her confidence in his word, but that's not where the lie ends. That's just the beginning. Did God really say quickly becomes more blunt in verse 4. 
The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the lie? What is the accusation? God is deceiving you, says the devil. He has made his rules because he is selfish. Because he is trying to hoard the best things for himself. Because he is jealous or afraid and he is manipulating you. He has you under his thumb and he is persecuting you there. God is not good, says the devil. The fact is that life in this fallen world constantly tests us. Satan is still telling his lie. It continues to echo in our own nature. Every difficulty, every affliction, every challenge, every grief, every loss, every restriction, every moment of self-denial, every call to worship something other than ourselves becomes a contest of theologies, of views of God. There are two. Is God good? Or is he a liar? Which do I believe? Do you trust in God's goodness today? Do you see his gracious hand of provision in all things? Do you know that his heart for you is trustworthy? Do you believe that our God is good and that he does good? Cutting against that lie is the greatest of truths. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The lie is ridiculous to understand. God's not holding out on us. How could the God who did not spare his son in order to rescue us suddenly decide that he's been too generous and the wallet is closing? It's just not who he is. See our God and believe him in these words. See our God and believe him in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Lord God is good and he does good. And we are called to trust in him with all our hearts, to lean not on our own understanding. What a place for us to begin a year. This call to trust in God's goodness is more profound and more powerful 
than it may seem at first. The life of faith that that confidence creates, the comfort and strengths that it provides, shows us that the goodness of God is our shield and our strength. For example, think of King David and what we know of his life. It was tumultuous and conflicted. I think of the the most significant battles I've had to fight in life. Never literally had to fight a giant. Never been violently persecuted by a king who I serve. Wars and tragedies the whole way through. Yes, his great failing, for which he is responsible in his own sin, but perhaps that leads us sometimes to forget that David is called the man after God's own heart for the uniqueness of his faith. The young man standing before Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord, says David. Incredible faith. The way in which he endured the persecution of Saul without ever giving up or even retaliating. Behind those actions was belief. This belief is what sustained him in life and faith through all the difficult seasons. We see this belief in his Psalms. Why don't we read Psalm 23, for example. We've come to associate this with funerals, which is something of a tragedy. Yes, this is appropriate for a funeral, but it has so much to say to us in this life. Don't wait (laughs) until your funeral to become aware of it. This is David's view of God behind that remarkable life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Do you understand what he's saying? Because God is my shepherd, I will have everything I need. It's a given. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What was the still waters in the life of David? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is yours today in Christ. This is not a kind of trust in God's goodness, which wilts in the face of trial or hardship or loss. No, rather, those tumultuous times are precisely where this faith thrives. Why? Because even in the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Shocking if you think about it. 
Like in Psalm 119, David has concluded that the love of God for him is so dependable that even in the shadow of death itself, that love has not been removed. Suffering and loss do not have to go away before David can say that God is good and does good. He can say in the midst of the trial that God is good. David's God is with him in the valley. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Just consider that image. Not too long ago, Josh preached to us the story of of David and Goliath. And he reminded us of the two armies camped, one on each side of a valley with a plain in between them. Picture it. In this imagery, before David stands all of his enemies on one side of the valley. And he had a larger than average number of them. Kings and nations. On one side of the valley, they are lined up in a row, ready to charge and to do him harm. But here with him on this side of the valley is the Lord God Almighty. And he is in the process of setting up a picnic rug. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And on top of this table sits platters of delight. Every good thing which comes from above is laid out in a banquet. And David knows that there is nothing which his enemies could do to remove a single one of these blessings. God is anointing his head with oil. David picks up his drink and the cup is overflowing. Though they took his life, his soul soul would still rest secure. And so he concludes Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice a word there with me. Surely. What other sane conclusion could I reach than this? That because God is good and he does good, that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. My doubts and my fears, my lack of trust is irrational. If God is who he says he is, if he cares for me the way that he promises, then what else could possibly be true? Please understand that this is not The naive ramblings of someone who has developed a philosophy which is disconnected from reality. This is not wishful thinking. Neither is this the prosperity gospel, which says nothing bad will ever happen to me. No, this is a view of the good and sovereign God, which says, even in the presence of hardship and danger and tragedy, these things have no power to rob me of his blessings or of his presence. And I trust him. This is the content of David's faith. No wonder he lived the way that he did. I know of no other source which could produce that life. 
Let me give you a more recent example, and I will endeavour to get through this without becoming a snotty mess. I'm not aware of a better example of what it means to trust in the Lord than the life of George Mueller, who lived in England in the 1800s. That's him there. Look at that face. It's a man who's been on the mountain. He pastored in the one church in England for 60-something years. Know what you're thinking? That must have been a wonderful church. (laughs) He's famous for having built orphanages at a time when the care for the orphan was almost unheard of. There was no social structures to protect them. And by the end of his life, they've estimated that over 10,000 young lives had been preserved by his ministry. When he was in his 60s, his wife died of illness. And he preached on her, at her funeral on the goodness of God. From Psalm 119. The Lord is good and does good. I assure you I will not be preaching at my wife's funeral. I will be sitting in the front crying and unable to speak if I am alive on that day. I don't know how he did it. It's important that we understand that what we are hearing here is not the voice of a stale, hard man who was able to say these things because he lacked compassion, because he didn't really care about his wife. He wasn't one of those. No, George was known as a big-hearted man. He was loved by many, and he and his wife had a notoriously happy marriage. He was in the depths of grief when he wrote his sermon. But take note, because we are about to be schooled in what it means to trust in the Lord. Here's just one piece of what he said that day. The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. She took about six days to die of fever. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's from the King James. Now, if, if we had believed in the Lord, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such, he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. But I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. And therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. Did God really say Yes, says George. God really said. 
I encourage you to go online and find a copy of that whole sermon. It will destroy you in the best of ways. <laughs> For example, he's, he's, he's preaching on Psalm 119. This is the three points of the whole sermon. Point number one. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Point number two. He was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. And point number three. He was good and did good in taking her from me. I've not been to a funeral like that. What a profound faith. Brothers and sisters, it is time to let this into our hearts. God is good. Do you know this? Do you trust in the Lord. It's a knowledge which has to be pursued. It's not a thing which comes easily. It's not a thing which comes automatically. Our fallen natures need to be convinced. We need to be reminded. We need to deliberately make the connection between who we know God to be and our present situation. Can I use you as an example just briefly? Right? We've been talking with the Livesies for the last little while. They have no desire to leave Australia. None. I spoke to them the other week and I told them that we had all taken a vote and that they were not allowed to go. They did not have our permission to depart. No nunc dimittis for you. Daniel's told me that all the Lord needs to do is to completely transform the Australian housing market and job market, and to get their family to move here, and then everything will be okay. We have to conclude that none of that worked, because our good God has a good plan for you, and that is his kindness and his goodness, which is sending you overseas. What else could be true? Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. This is profound, do you understand? This, this applies in all the situations of, of your life as well. Every grief, every loss, every worry, every challenge, every trial. It remains true that the Lord God is good. And your heart needs to answer the question, did he really say, do I really trust? We have every reason to trust after a time like this together, surely that means that we have some homework to do before next week. We have one job to do this week, which is to spend some time with our God, allowing him to finally speak into those places where we have been keeping him at a distance, to take the jar off the top of some of those hidden pains, hidden worries, and hidden doubts and allow the reality of who he is to meet us in our place of need and by doing so to choose to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding but in all our ways to acknowledge him so that he will direct our paths let's pray
my Father, I, I freely confess that your message today convicts me. I do not trust you like that. Not consistently. Lord, I am so aware of my pains, of my afflictions, of my trials. I'm so aware of where I lack what I want. I am so slow to see your gracious hand. And it's hard, Lord. Because to trust you with these things feels like a blind trust. I do not have the solution today that I want. To trust you with the unknown feels precarious. Lord, it's not unknown and it's not blind. Because I know who you are. I know who you have been. And I know who you will be. I know that you are good in who you are and what you do. And that nothing else has ever been true. I don't know how long it will take, my God, for me to trust you the way you deserve. But would you move me towards that sanity today and this week and this month? Father, through the eyes of faith, we, we gladly confess that you are worthy of that trust and that we have no good reason for doubt. Father, we thank you for your gracious mercy which meets us in our weakness and rather than condemning us for our lack of faith, takes the small ember of faith and that you fan it into flame, that you are patient with us beyond our deserving. Rescue us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.